Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. First, I'd like to welcome everyone to this fantastic event organized by Julia Hobsbawm. Um, I hope it's going to be a fantastic day ahead. Uh, I remember the last, the last time I was in New York was quite a while ago. It was during the uh, run-up to the financial crisis. It's a rather different mood today. Um, unfortunately, last time I came to New York, I was interviewing um, the head of Goldman Sachs in his office, and it was the week before Lehman's Brothers went bust. And I was very excited, thinking I was going to be interviewing him and um, finding out what was going on in the financial crisis. Halfway through the interview, his secretary came in with a yellow post-it note. And I thought, oh, my God, and I said to him, has Lehman Brothers gone bust? And Lloyd Blankfein looked at me kind of like as though I was a strange person in the room. I said, no, it's just my dentist appointment has been changed. <laughs> so there will be no, no financial scoops today, I'm afraid. But what I'd like to talk about is introduce this fantastic panel that we've got here today and then set the scene for the uh, conversation. And then we'll go into five minutes from each speaker and then open it up after that to uh, Q&A. So f- first we have... Uh, Karen Manderback, who I've just shocked in the corner. She's an award-winning TV producer, and she's re- moved to London in 2006, so she's now one of us, I suppose. I'll check your, test your British accent. Um, her hits have included an amazing range, from The Cosby Show, Roseanne, Third Rock from the Sun, The 70s Show, and Nurse Jackie, which is now airing in the BBC, as well Actually as... now a, moved to Sky. It's now moved to Sky as well. You heard it here first. And uh, she is fascinating on the sort of background of the media industry. And I think she's going to be talking a bit about later about some of the differences as well between working in Britain and the role of the BBC there and how different (coughs) drama is treated in in England. And I know that she likes that Brits take responsibility for their actions. It's something you wrote in a piece. And uh, but it is concerned that British reality TV has has basically destroyed the American media. So we have Brits (laughs) to thank. Um, We also have... uh, Clemency Burton-Hill, um, on my left, who uh, I guess I can just describe as a Renaissance woman. Um, she's a writer, broadcaster, novelist, journalist, and violinist. So lots of ists. Um, and she uh, studied the violin from the age of two um, using the Suzuki method. Oh, God. <laughs> I sound like some precocious little brat. Um, well, anyway, apparently it's been an amazing tool to actually get people to talk to you as a journalist, which I think is a fascinating mix between... The, you know, the kind of tools we have um, to learn as journalists. And so she has loads of career, career paths. She's also writing a novel. And she's just done an interview for the Financial Times with Daniel Barenboim um, about his role as a musician and as a sort of politician. Um, and I think it would be really interesting to talk to her later. She's just returned last night from the West Bank, where she mentioned to me that the role of uh, creativity over there is a fascinating contrast to coming back to stodgy Britain by comparison. Um, third up, we have Sasha Frere-Jones who is another Renaissance man, a staff writer at The New Yorker, a musician as well, and he edits the Life and Art section of The Daily. Um, he is currently also working on a book at the moment tied to his 2007 piece in The New Yorker about the role of race in uh, pop music. Um, you can also talk to him online later this week. I understand he's just done a great <laughs> piece for The New Yorker on Beyonce and Lady Gaga. Um, and coming artist, yeah. It's coming up soon. <laughs> and um, it should be a great piece. I know we had a great piece with her recently in the FT with Stephen Fry, and she was wearing a Viking hat. Um, the last um, 
person on the panel is Jordan Roth, who's president of the uh, Jew Jansen Theatre, and I learned how to describe that, the name by, he said, Jew as in not Christian, jam as in the condiment, and sin as in the devil, so Jew Jansen Theatres. Um, he has just won nine Tonys for the Book of Mormon, including Best Musical. He oversees five Broadway theatres. His productions are amazing. They include Hair, The House of Blues, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And he got into the theatre as a young child after watching La Cage aux Folles. Um, but he also has an amazing business brain. He did an MBA at Columbia. And he was on the list of most creative people for Fast Company. And according to the New York Times profile, he likes to describe his favourite things as delicious. <laughs> so I just want to quickly set the scene and then we can move into some kind of remarks from the um, panel. Um, first, I think one of the overall points is in a word, world of WikiLeaks, Photoshop, cut-and-paste journalism, we certainly see the rise of manipulated reality shows, which is something I know Karen is concerned about. There is a question about what is truthful in the creative industries and whether that really matters. Does it matter to be truthful in the media? Although at the FT we answer that question by, with an advertising slogan which says, no FT, no comment. Um, second, in a world in which ratings and commercial pressures are increasingly real, there is obviously a question about is the internet destroying traditional media businesses? And what impact is that really having on creativity? Are we being squeezed? Are we, is the role of the creative individual less important than algorithms? And third, I think we're living in a world in which the ability to think creatively and innovate will determine our competitive advantage in the West. And there is a question if, in that context about whether you can teach creativity. And that matters not just for our cultural heritage, but also for our economic futures. So I think the role of the creativity in the West is also going to be an interesting point for the panel. Um, and I'd like to start with Jordan Roth. Um, and I wanted to... He did a really interesting Q&A the other day with Bono and Edge just ahead of the Spider-Man launch. And he, there was a key quote which came out of that Q&A, which was about creativity and its discontents. And it, basically, Bono and Edge were asked about the role of the Spider-Man. And he said... Um, uncurtailed ambitions proved a bigger threat to Spider-Man than the Green Goblin. So I think that's quite a good way to set this up in terms of how far unabashed creativity can actually get in the way of commercial success. So over to you, Jordan. Um, thank you. Um, well, you know, what's interesting about that comment from Bono is he was um, talking mostly technologically about the, the technological ambition of the show. Um, but to our topic, it speaks very much to the commercial ambition of it as well. And really, it seems to have been the commercial ambition of the show, the sort of humongous uh, budget by theater standards, up to $70 million, um, when a regular musical, big musical, might cost 15 um, That's what seems to have brought the eye of our industry, certainly of entertainment journalism, uh, and made us so scrutinize this show. Um, what's interesting to me, though, is the theater is definitionally commercial. Um, the project of theater, on any scale, requires an audience to complete it. If you, you can have a painting and it can sit in a closet and it's still a painting. A piece of theater, a play, a performance that's not being seen is a rehearsal. It is an approximation of the thing, but it's, it's not the thing itself. Um, 
And so I think we get into trouble in, in the theater, and that I will sort of speak from my own field, when we make too hard a distinction between commercial and non-commercial theater. The, the project requires an audience. Um, we, we do talk about, though, in the theater, commercial theater and non-profit theater, but by that we just mean who keeps the money. We don't mean that nobody's trying to get people to come see it. Um, the question then is how many? And I think that gets to our mass. What's a mass? Um, in the theater, a big musical, a hit musical, might be seen by 10 or 12 or 15,000 people in a week. You know, I don't even know if you can register those numbers in television. Um, but to us, that's mass. Um, when we think about... When we think about, though... Um, mass as a definition of number versus mass as a definition of demographic. Um, an interesting example is something called Theater for One, which is a project that uh, the set designer Christine Jones has created. Um, it is a custom-made theater booth, one audience member, one performer, doing uh, a brief under 10-minute performance, um, but the kicker is, this booth is in the middle of Times Square. So, mass as in wide demographic of audience, yes. Mass as in huge numbers, no. Um, where I think we get ourselves into trouble is, uh, on this question of mass, is when we start creating for an audience that we don't like, that we think is stupid, or that we think is unsophisticated, um, or that we think is not ourselves. Um, and I think that's, that's a sort of hubris of creation that will not make us commercial, not make us creative, just make us bad. <laughs> um, and I think that's where the creative and the commercial intersect to the negative. Um, the internet question, uh, as Ken was talking about Julie's, Julie Taymor's uh, challenges over Twitter and Facebook, what's interesting about that is we don't want people to talk while we're creating, but we will do anything to get them to talk once we're trying to sell. Um, I don't think we get to make that choice if we are harnessing that power of technological word of mouth um, in the selling process, we have to accept it in the creating process. Would you want more transparency in your theatres about the creative process? Would you allow more um, people in behind the scenes to talk about it, write about it? Would that help? Would it help what? The creative process or the selling process? The tweets. Um, sure. I mean, I think transparency always works. Helping people uh, understand <laughs> the goals of the show absolutely always work. Yeah. Well, what were the lessons from the uh, Spider-Man experience from that? Is it a good thing to have allowed more transparency at the beginning? They didn't allow a lot of transparency at the beginning. Um, I think the transparency sort of emerged. 
Um, um, you know, I think part of the challenge, part, part of the issue is maybe individually, the, the audience to me, collectively, always has information. Individually, maybe less so. Um, usually it's not for the audience to answer the questions, it's for the audience to ask the questions and the creators to answer them. Um, and I think that's where Julie was sort of having trouble with this idea, as Ken was saying, of, um, of uh, uh, sort of group think. Sorry, I interrupted you all. No. Um, Talk. All that's right. what I got. Okay, that's your five minutes. Thank you very much. Um, over to Clemency. Hi there. I had an experience in New York recently, which I suspect might be familiar to many of you in this room who have kids, um, which I don't. They were my nieces visiting from London, and uh, they're incredibly bright and creative and engaged kids, and I was really looking forward to taking them up the Empire State Building, see the Statue of Liberty, to the Natural History Museum, all of which they very much wanted to do. But before they did any of that, the first place they wanted to visit was this place called Build-A-Bear Workshop. Now, for those of you who don't know what Build-A-Bear Workshop is, it operates on a devastatingly simple principle, which is that essentially... You trick a kid into thinking that they're being given free reign to create an individual toy that's completely unique. And in actual fact, what they're doing is following a prescription that millions of kids all around the globe are doing, and they're essentially creating stuffed animals that all look pretty much the same and are all made in China. And I should point out that Build-A-Bear uh, trades on the New York Stock Exchange and last year made $500 million. I think we live in a world in which a huge premium is said to be placed on creativity, but I fear that the reality is much more Build-A-Bear. In Britain, despite the fact that our Philistine government is doing everything it can to cut public subsidy to the arts, and most importantly to arts education, and perhaps I'll get on to the importance that I think that the arts education and music education can have for society and for our competitive advantage. Despite the fact that they're cutting this left, right and centre, they still like to boast that Britain's creative industries are the envy of the world. Well, probably not for much longer, David Cameron, but there's the rub. Industry. We're talking about businesses, essentially. And the herd mentality that Gillian and Ken referred to earlier is incredibly helpful, I think, for industry and not so helpful when it comes to genuine creative innovation. But, of course, unless you're, unless you're content to create into a vacuum, as it were, the chances are that as a creative individual, you're going to be reliant on a structure, on a commercial structure, that gives you the license and the resources and the means to distribute your creative work. And that commercial structure might have a very different idea of what creativity is, if you like. Now, I realise, of course, that these days there are many different platforms for the creative person who otherwise once might have been sitting in their room reciting Shakespeare to themselves with their hairbrush in front of the mirror. But I'm going to leave that to people like Sasha, who's right at the vanguard of this kind of new media creative universe, because the models that I have to work with generally uh, in my work, which is you know, drama, print and TV journalism, fiction and music, I think those 20th century structures, if you like, still prevail. And... Yes, what I see there is, um, depressingly, often, the Build-A-Bear model, if you like, where a company's aiming for this sweet spot where there's a point they can, where they can convince audiences that they've got something really unique and individual and creative when, in fact, they've all 
pretty lemming-like, just followed a formula which the company can then replicate across the globe with minimum effort ad infinitum. Drama, for example, I could count on one hand the number of genuinely original scripts that I've read over the past few years. Now, needless to say, these are not the scripts that Karen's producing. But I'll be reading a TV pilot script and I'll be thinking, oh, wait, but I've read this one already. I know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, this is the one where, you know, and then the gag comes and the beat comes. And then I'll think, but wait a minute. Now, I'm sure they were lawyers, not cops or doctors or realtors or whatever it is. And it feels like the same formula is just being replicated again and again. Now, I'm positive that this is not because the writers themselves are uncreative or even that the producers are uncreative. And, of course, American TV shows prove time and time again that true originality can get through. And I can tell you that in Britain we are gnawingly envious of shows like Nurse Jackie. And I think it's absolutely fascinating that it's gone from the BBC to Sky, and I'll get on to the BBC in a minute. Um, we're obviously very envious of Mad Men, The Wire, The Sopranos, things like that. But I swear, when I read a lot of TV and film scripts today, even in America... Uh, I can hear the studio exec who's going, let's make this the new dot, dot, dot. Oh, and we'll cast the new dot, 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 because so-and-so is so hot right now. And that brings me to the paradox of the new such-and-such. Such. I think one of the most perplexing moments as an author is when you sit with your publishers and you realise that they're trying to figure out which pre-existing author or book they can neatly compare you to. Now, I think the approach that these companies take in crunch times when people would rather build a bear or watch a reality show that seems to have been built by numbers rather than read anything is that they need to reassure an audience that they're giving them something that they're already familiar with and they already like and of course I understand that so you do have these strange conversations where they're saying well you know what's it like what can we compare it to and you're thinking well it's sort of a bit like that and it's sort of a bit like that and you can see that they're drawing this box around you which they're then going to put it in and try and sell it with and I think that need to categorise and to put a label on something, a branded formula, if you like, is, is rampant in the publishing industry today and in the film and TV industry, and I'm sure in the music industry, which Sasha will probably talk more about. But I bet you even now, execs are desperately scrabbling around, trying to find the new Justin Bieber, trying to find the new Lady Gaga, and surely that misses the point entirely. Now, I do want to just quickly mention the BBC great love of my life, the BBC. I'll defend it to the very bitter end, but I do think that it's distressing that a public service broadcaster who really should be free from the kind of commercial, financial imperatives that other broadcasters face perhaps feel that they can't take any risks, because basically the BBC is having a bit of an identity crisis at the moment. It doesn't know whether its role is to use public money to reach the parts that other broadcasters don't reach, or whether to use public money to provide its own version of the sort of lowest common denominator reality show sort of models that I'm sure Karen's going to talk more about in a minute that fare very well on other channels. Now, it feels to me that this moment in time is precisely the moment where TV executives and commissioners should really be being bold and courageous and using all of those platforms that are out there and all of that creativity that's definitely out there in the world to exercise their vision to be a bit bold, a bit courageous and take risks. But invariably, they're not. And they're taking the Gorka route that we talked about earlier, which I completely understand and appreciate from Gorka's point of view, given the kind of company that Gorka is. And they're not taking the eat your spinach route, which is sad because the BBC should be introducing spinach into the likes of the diet because maybe people will stop finding it disgusting once they actually start eating. You know, saute a bit, put a bit of garlic and a bit of pancetta or something, and it makes it edible. Now, I don't want to paint a picture of total doom and gloom because... 
I do feel incredibly encouraged and excited at the moment by various things that are going on in the creative industries I see around me. On the one hand, of course, things come along every now and again that are really, truly innovative and new, and somebody dared to take a risk on them, and they've been rewarded. I'm thinking of, say, Jennifer Egan's wonderful book, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which wasn't neatly categorizable. I would have loved to have been in that publishing meeting when they were saying, you know, what are we going to, what's it, the new? Uh, it's not the new anything. It's completely unique. And, of course, it's done incredibly well. And I hear that HBO developing it as a TV show. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. And on the other hand, I also want to think about the amazingly creative and innovative things that people are doing, not with new works of art, but with the very, very old. Because, of course, creative people are not just generators. They're also interpreters and reinterpreters. And I was incredibly privileged last week to be at Daniel Barenboim and Pierre Boulez's concert of Wagner and Liszt in London. And I guarantee it was as thrilling as any Beyoncé or Lady Gaga concert. Um, Rupert Gould's production of The Merchant of Venice, which is currently playing in the RSC in Stratford, is worth a flight to Britain. Trust me on that one. Every word is new. Every word is as if it's being breathed for the first time, and that has nothing to do with the fact that he's set it in a contemporary Vegas casino. So I think it's worth bearing in mind that we were celebrating storytelling earlier. A good story is a good story, and a great story allows for and also requires constant recreation. Thanks. Thank you very much, Clemency. Um, Sasha, over to you. Um, can, is this working? Is there an ambient? Okay. Uh, I feel like I'm going to tell my son. My son, the older one, is turning 14 today. and In 20 years, he'll say, didn't you know that woman who's in 10 Downing Street now named Clemency? And so, yeah, I, I sat next to her once. Um, uh, and she occasionally writes for me, which is extremely um, lucky for me. I think I'm here basically to endorse uh, mistakes and be a bit of an optimist in an unexpected way. Um, my other younger son, here's an example of why I think <clears throat> there are many things to worry about, but at the end of the day, for creative people, at least, there's nothing to worry about. There's a book. I'm going to use some bad language now. You'll just have to bleep it out in the podcast. Um, a man who had written a couple of books uh, came up with an unusual idea for a kid's book which reflected very much the anyone who has kids and has tried to put a kid to sleep will know this feeling. And he just wrote a book called Go the Fuck to Sleep. <laughs> and um, it is actually about the trial of... It's, it's about putting a child to bed, but also the trial of the parent. Um, and you can probably write it in your head. Um, luckily, he wrote it. Um, it went to a very small press. It was overwhelmed. Huge success. Times did the piece on it. And um, very appropriately, there's now an audio book by Samuel L. Jackson, who says fuck better than anyone. And so my 11-year-old was in the room and we <laughs> had our gadgets out and I had downloaded it and I just wanted to see what it sounded like. And um, he liked it so much that I had to, he was going to bed and I had to play it three times for him. And he was completely in tears the whole time. And then it was like, I love you, Dad. All right, good night. And then the next morning he emailed all his friends. He's like, you've got to get go the fuck to sleep. You've got to tell your parents <laughs> to get go the fuck to sleep. And I thought... <laughs> I'm going to get all these emails later today about <laughs> what... But, you know, that's an example of... Um, nobody would have planned that. Nobody thought that was a good idea. How are you going to rack that in bookshops? You know what? It worked out. It worked out incredibly well. 200,000 copies sold of a book, which is insane. Um, that may even be more than Jennifer Egan's amazing book, um, which I read on... Strange moment. I read that book on my Kindle where the PowerPoint presentation actually doesn't look as good as it looks in the book. 
So wow. you have to be open to the weirdness of the world. And I think as a musician and as someone who stumbled into a career, I think at some point I thought I was a playwright um, and I was not very good at it. But and that's the last time I chose a career and I let everything else happen by accident. Um, no one could have predicted where we are now. And, it, and it's a frustrating moment, Clemency. And I've talked a little bit about, you know, there's this new world and there's this tablet thing. And I'm afraid that the thing that I love most about it and anyone who creates content for it loves is that you are trapped with this thing. You, you, you can't IM and you can't get email while you're reading a publication, um, which means that you have these amazing metrics. People go to a website for three minutes. They will go to a, an application for 30 to 40 minutes. And if you are in, uh, if you love reading and you love putting forward good work, that's amazing probably in a couple of years when this becomes a good computer, which it isn't yet, um, you'll be able to IM your friends while you're reading and, and we'll kind of maybe get back to the sort of the bodega of the web now, which is, you know, you know, you just jump around getting the bits you need. But none of these two things, I mean, we were talking about Gawker before and it's easy to sort of, you know, either fear or mock Gawker. I think one interesting thing that happened to them as a company as is, I don't, I'm not that wound up about the page views and like of course it's popular to have you know nipple slips and bikini galleries or whatever not that they do that but other people do that but um, along the way they became incredibly good at investigative journalism and I'm seeing now other news organizations pick up stories that they've broken and I think okay um, everyone had sort of I mean think of even the New Yorker itself when the New Yorker started it actually was a bit like Gawker it was a bunch of very funny people making fun of each other and their friends in New York, and it wasn't very good. And it took 10 years for it to become what it's become. And I think if I have any fear about the now, and it's, it relates back to the Spider-Man thing, I'm not trying to falsely tie everything together, but it, it, <laughs> it's sort of there, is, um, and, and I see this with bands every day. Um, I saw a band put up a poster outside my house um, this weekend, <laughs> And I thought, and we used to, I have a whole bunch of frame posters in my house of, of my own band. We used to do mono prints, we would do silk screens, we would spend more time making the poster probably than we did rehearsing for the show, or I did because I loved them. And you never see posters anymore, never. And it used to be, the Lower East Side used to be a gallery of, of insane posters. Cop Shoot Cop used to do these huge, Todd and I would talk about how he did them, they were two by two things he would climb up on the side of a building on Avenue A and put them up. Some of them are actually, um, at least a, a year ago, one of them was still there. And this was the way that we talked to each other. Now nobody puts up a poster because why would you? You just tweet that you have a gig and everybody goes or they don't. Um, don't is a very viable option. Um, but somebody, some label had put, it was so quaint and stupid, but they had put a poster on a lamppost and I thought, I haven't seen one of those in, I don't even know how long I've, it's been. I couldn't think of when I'd seen a poster. Um, and Anyway, that's just a, a bit of an aside. But for, for music, the moment, and Spider-Man is a bigger version of this moment, and I'm thinking of, of M.I.A. and Lily Allen and people I've spoken to over the years who, um, who they make a record, they've maybe, they've, maybe, they've maybe made music ten times. I don't mean they've played ten shows. I mean, they've been in a studio or even on their own ten times and they make one demo and it gets to one person, it sounds amazing and groundbreaking. Before they know it, they're on tour. Well, of course they're terrible live. They've never done it. And instead of having, you know, this mystical, what's Malcolm's 10,000 hours thing, you know, 
they haven't had an hour on stage, much less 10,000 hours. And so these people aren't having room or time to make mistakes. They can't screw up infinitely. Now, the good thing is that Spider-Man is another example. If you're hardy enough and you can take that and you can, and you can learn in public, which sounds terrifying to me, um, and I'm glad nobody was watching the first 10 years of my musical career, which weren't much better than the following 10. Um, I worry that there are people who would turn into really interesting artists who will simply be sort of, they'll just be blown back by this fan, this, this amazing fan. I mean, I'm, it's happened to me a little bit in public when I've had to you know, talk about pieces and it circulates and you get a lot of angry letters and tweets and things. And, you can learn from it, but you, you kind of have to be ready for the NFL the minute you become an artist. You have to be ready for... And I, and I think there are more delicate types. There are more... Um, some of the more troubled writers we know about who are phenomenal you know, figures of 20th century literature. Like, would they, you know... The first time somebody called F. Scott Fitzgerald short, would he, be, he would have cried and he would have gone home and maybe he would have said, fuck it, I'm not going to write anything. Like, you... Not that he was short. I'm just saying. Um, it's it's a really, it's an incredibly creative and incredibly fast moving atmosphere. But it it's pretty brutal. Um, and I think there's certain kind. Of, and, and you can't keep anything secret. If you decide, friends and I have this sort of running game. Like, okay, how could we stay off the radar? All right, we're gonna have a gig at your house. Um, <laughs> We're going to close all the windows, we'll play everything on cassette, and we'll blindfold everybody. And I'm like, some motherfucker will come in and blog it anyway. It doesn't matter. You can't stay off of the grid. And that will, that's not going to destroy anything. It's not going to mean that anything bad happens. I mean, look at, look, you know, as you were saying about the cookie cutter approach, um, this happened at a very famous music television network once. Um, <laughs> that we were making up a show that was, I suppose it was snarky. We were making fun of Mace and his shiny green suits. And we cut together, um, he has a dance he would do where he kind of like looked like his arms were broken. And he did it in many, many different, this is now a staple of blogs. You do a supercut, you put every goofy moment together and you're like, look how dumb they look. Old, Brit old Brittany, new Brittany. And so we cut together all of Mace's most broken arm dances and we're lying and crying and we think this is the funniest thing ever, and we bring it to them, and they're like, yeah, that's just too mean. That's, that's not going to work, and you should probably use more footage that we already own. And we're like, okay, we'll do what you already do. Okay. And so you have that meeting where it's like, yes, we want you to do something completely unusual and just, just blow our minds, but also make it look exactly like every show we already have. And, of course, what came out the other end was this crippled, 30-minute thing that never got shown again. Um, and w what happens? You know, go the fuck to sleep happens. MIA, who no one would have... You couldn't thought of her. You couldn't have built a bear her. You couldn't have done anything except she just came out and she was herself and then someone was wise enough to sign her and, like, boom, you're off to the races. So um, even, even though, God love her, the early shows weren't very good and there was a lot of stumbling at the beginning, she was obviously... A, complete visionary and unlike anyone probably the most important artist of the last decade and but she didn't do anything the way she was supposed to do it and that will still overwhelm anyone's you know conservative let's cookie cutter it to death that all the good news is that, that always gets trumped by the person who comes along and says basically go the fuck to sleep
Like, you know, if, if you do that, that move, and it's real, will blow everything else out of the water. But you, you have to be brave enough to be, you know, to ignore the millions of tweets, to ignore all of that noise, which Maya is very good at doing, um, you know, truffle fries or whatever. But Sasha, I'm going to stop you there talking of... Um cookie-cutter approaches, and then bring in... Um, a good idea to start Bring in Karen... Ah, bring I'm in so Karen happy to be listening to you. Because you have an amazing background in terms of dealing with cookie-cutter producers and oh. irascible uh, broadcasters, so... I'm probably not going to talk about what you want me to talk about today. Um, a, a little bit, I will, but... Um, because I thought, really, it best to talk about the individual's um, urge for self-expression. Um, because people think of producers as, uh, for the most part... Um, they have one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat, that boat being um, um, just raw, I've got to get what I want said, and uh, the dock being the concerns that are, are you know, overwhelmingly commercial. If I had to say who I am, I'm definitely on the boat. I don't really care about the money. I, don't, I can't pay attention. I, I really, people get, they do what they do, uh, but I, I don't care. I care about self-expression. Now, here's what happened to me. I lived in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, I was... Uh, Three and my aunt tells this story, which is I was wailing beyond uh, measure because my mother had left me pretty much for the first time, and I couldn't be, you know, uh, calmed down. And uh, she said, finally, she said, she turned to me, she said, Karen, darling, what do you want? And I said, a cup of tea, a piece of bread. And she was so um, impressed that I could um, articulate very much what I wanted. And I think that's just it. Everybody wants to say, everyone wants to be. Um, specific about what their needs are, they want to express themselves, and everyone wants to be then lauded for being you know, so brilliant as to uh, be able to articulate what it is you've done. So I was a bossy kid, that's just it, and I was an articulate kid, and I said what I wanted. Now, later, of course, um, when I started putting on shows for my grandmother and the Golden Age Club of Duluth, Minnesota, uh, forcing my horrible cousins to do exactly what I wanted them to do, to perform, to produce, to do to uh, be production assistants, of course. And I would do this, I just, I couldn't stop myself. I just had to put on shows. The poor audience, as you can imagine, they thought I was brilliant. And that led me to, um, of course, I, as I was, that led me to believe that, um, this is a word that I think I'm making up, uh, that um, I was a metanoic, which I believed that everyone was out to help me. I didn't believe I was, you know, I was paranoid. I, was just, I thought everyone wanted to help me. I presume that's just the way I get great feedback. And, um, you know, I thought, well, this is just then who I am, and I never second-guessed myself or anything. Cut to, of course, a few years later. Um, I'm a producer, strangely. Uh, what is a producer? An alchemist, someone who makes stuff up, you know, and then puts on a show. Um, I think this is a really great career for me. Not that I ever, as you, you know, or none of us ever really thought, I'm sure, about what we were doing. All the great people, who said this very clever person, all the great people drift into their careers. Um, I thought, well, what a good idea, I'll do this. And I, I was all right, I was doing all right with it. And um, then I went hiking once with my then nine-year-old daughter. And uh, we were in the most beautiful place ever, Oregon, the woods, the sounds, the smells. And we came across a banillion monarch butterflies. I was gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. I sat down and thought, have you ever, and I said to her, have you ever seen anything so beautiful? And she went, yeah. And I said, how can you say, yeah, <laughs> you know, to, to this extraordinary, she said, well, we're not seeing the same thing. And I said, I respect that we're not seeing the same thing, but in general, 
we're looking at the most extraordinary, and we're listening to Siegel. I mean, are you kidding me? And she said, no, I prefer, um, and she said this in kids speak, but basically what she said was, I would prefer a rendition of this. I would prefer it if an artist had painted this. I would prefer it if a photographer had done it, because we're none of us going to see the same thing. You need to broaden your, uh, you, you shouldn't be so sure of yourself, said she, that you are looking at the same thing I'm looking at. Well, it did really affect my um, thinking as a producer. The next thing that affected my thinking was having met Bill Cosby, who, who then said to me, in, a, in no uncertain terms, all decisions are artistic decisions, all character, all story, everything you're going to be saying. Everything you're going to be saying has to have some version of truth. May not be my truth, may not be your truth, but you better find some subset of the human condition that you can extrapolate out. And it can't be something that's already in the zeitgeist. It can't be anything that's already there. It has to be something that um, you feel and that you can point to as, in your opinion, for what it's worth, if not important, at least um, not the same as something that anyone else is saying. So that leads to a career in character identification uh, and in articulating story in a, broad, in, a, in a broad sense. So when people say, what do you do? You know, I would have to say, that's what I do. Now, back to uh, creativity as discontents. Um, uh, everyone who does what I do is now officially discontented. <laughs> now, <laughs> I, would, I would tell you why that is. Uh, and I'll try to break it down. Um, you know, if you're an art, I totally agree with all, what you were saying about um, uh, how fabulous it is. I was talking to yesterday for, to Anthony Hayden Guest. It's a great time to be an artist, just for the exact reasons, because there are spores everywhere, and they just fly, and they land, and they, there are more spores than ever. More individuals are going to pop up. There'll be fabulous people like Trey and Matt. They're, they're going to pop up, and I'm thrilled beyond measure that, that because my, both my kids are artists now, and it's scary to think that the, we live in a world that that you know couldn't that we couldn't create those things. However, I work with a lot of people, and working with a lot of people requires I'm dependent on others, and it, it not just the you know approbation of the of the golden age home of Duluth, Minnesota, uh, for my audience. I'm dependent on money, uh, a lot of it. I mean, there may only be seven stories to tell. I don't know, but it's getting pretty crowded. I'm feeling a lot of people, uh, I mean, all of a sudden, everybody has the same idea I have. Whereas I was thinking, hmm, I was thinking, brilliant, just me. Um, now, uh, the, other, the other kind of really weird encroachment, and this, I uh, could talk about the BBC and why I do respect it and why I'm thrilled to be a part of it. I know, um, but I, I left the country, <laughs> to, you know, which, you know, I love it. I still work here, and I have shows in development with HBO, and I'm, thrilled that I, I can still operate in both cases, and I will go into that if you'd like, but um, the problem is now, here, here comes the discontents. There are a lot of people who think they have that uh, urge for self-expression, um, but they really don't. They didn't put on, you know, shows for, their, for their, their relatives. They just thought it would be a good idea to do it commercially. That gets to, to your point. They just didn't have it in them to begin with. Um, Everyone uh, who's in the film entertainment business now, I assure you, feels bullied or ignored. I wasn't ignored. I was, I was beloved. And I was never bullied. No one ever told me what to do or how to feel. That's what's happening to us now. We're being told what to do and how to feel. Here are the specific forces that just happened to me over the past six months. These are the discontents that I've had in the past six months. No names. Um, 
these are just a t- tiny list of the shit that I have to go through all the time. And by the way, I'm joyous and happy. And having had that um, success as I've had, I completely am chasing that buzz forever. And I'm gonna, I'm never gonna stop. But here they are. We can't market that. Um, that might be offensive to a minority. That's not offensive enough because we need to build our subscription base. Um, if you partner with me, you can have access to my client. Um, the distributor wants half of your profits. Um, hurry up. If we can't get this done by September, my boss is leaving, and you might as well piss up a rope. Um, so and in conclusion, I just want to say, you know, look, every hit is a miracle. Everything we say, everything we um, try to ferret out of a, an unsuspecting society, and then um, with, the, with the help of uh, writers and actors and directors, who, by the way, because of various forces, internet, reality, TV, whatever, what have you, uh, there's at least two-thirds less work for creative people, for people who had that. I'm mean, just fact. There just ain't that much work around. So we can't, we can't do what we, our innate um, uh, instincts are telling us to do. And narrative fiction has to be itself, has to be, I mean, you know, Warner Brothers used to do 60 movies, now they're doing 12 you know, I don't want to see the Green Lantern, you don't either, but they're going to keep doing things that are going to make you want to do things that you don't really want to do. You want to hear stories. You want to be part of a world in which storytelling and character articulation um, is enriching. And I worry. That's what I'm worried about. And journalism, I don't worry about journalism. I think there's always going to be stories, real factual stories, beautifully told, person-driven ones. I'm worried about the mythologizing uh, what, to what my daughter's point was, which is the enriched experience, the articulated experience, the beautifully written, all of the people that I hire, by the way, mostly are playwrights. Uh, I, you know, we, we, are, we are as one in terms of what we're up to, and it gives me the shivers to think that uh, we have to decide between commercial and um, uh, non-commercial. Uh, that is why I moved to England, by the way. We shouldn't have to. doesn't matter. Just, you can do well by doing good. You know, the famous Cosby thing... Um, when I first met him, he said to me, um, uh, we will hire 80% of the people who work on this show will be black. By the way, this was 1984. There were no black people working in the industry. Not because it's the right thing to do, said he, but because it will make us money. All right, he was right. And you know what? We shouldn't have to make any of those choices ever, nor should the BBC mandate anything. Anyway, um, you know, you totally feel like you're uh, the golden age home, and I hope you enjoy the bingo. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my little story. There was a lot of stuff, so perhaps I can just sort of start backwards. Um, it'd be really interesting to compare, you know, would the Cosby show get made now? You know, if you look back in some of the shows you were involved with and the processes you have to go through mm-hmm. now with audience Metaphor, I mean, the analog version of it, meaning, uh, no. But what's the difference now between pitching, you know, in terms of how far do you find broadcasters are much well, more that, focused it, on the wrong stuff? Oh, uh, I, don't, I don't really care about broadcasters. I mean, to be honest, it's we, before it gets to the broadcaster, almost um, so much second guessing. But the reason why it wouldn't is because, to your point, uh, somebody like Cosby, who'd made mistakes and had worked and worked and worked and spent his first 20 years, formative years here, um, uh, in front of people, 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 and all he ever did when he worked was listen. He never really cared about what he was saying. He just really edited as he as he was going. Um, so we don't see stand-ups anymore. We don't even see Roseanne anymore. You know, we don't see it because they get plucked too soon. 
and so we don't have any. Uh, um, nobody's act. They're, they 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 get they're dead or they burn out or so we that show couldn't have been pitched for that reason and also because we were pretty uh, subversive without actually you know being evident about it. We were very subversive. I think the Cosby Show was. I'd be really interested in the point that you made earlier about the NFL and how you have to be ready for the NFL as soon as you come out of the box now because everything happens so fast if you're a creative individual. You know, you can get blown away after a week. Perhaps you can comment on that in your own, in the dramatic world. Well, I think that's true, although there's also that period of 10 years where you are desperate to get the NFL to come scout you. Um... And that's the period of development. Part of the challenge, I think, I mean, something like Mormon, for instance, Matt and Trey's show. Which I can't get into, by the way. I just yeah. Well, you can call me. Yeah, I couldn't get tickets later. Do you want to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I tried. We have panel privilege. I can't take it. We'll have a field trip. Yeah. You too. And that's it. Put your hands up now. Definitely dropping the That show was developed. Over eight years, every hiatus of South Park, privately, um, to to very much that point of the. This was not a slam dunk by any means, right? I mean, this is. Is it too subversive? Are are we ever going to sell a group to it? Um, all of these things that we look for in in commercial mass um, this had a lot of negatives um, <laughs> and so in this case the work was created privately over a huge amount of time and then introduced um, some shows that that's not possible the I mean I think the the spider-man example is they felt like they couldn't do it privately because it was all about the tech. But really, it's all about the story. Um, and the tech only can enhance story. If you are, if you're saying the, the tech will fix my story, stop. But also the value added quality in theater of fabulous technical theater is one thing, war horse, hooray. But the value added uh, work by someone who's, or uh, uh, two people who are funny. <laughs> to get funny, you know, is much more, in my opinion, important value added work because you don't want to do this ordinary thing. You want to add value to it. And that value, having not seen it, of course, I can wax right on about it. But um, I'm sure it's amazing for that, uh, you know, for that reason. I mean, obviously, I'm prejudiced toward comedy, but. Um, um, Technology is is great, but you know only up to a point. I wonder if we can talk a bit about, about how you stand out in a crowd these days. You know, with there's so much mass, you know, stuff going on online in terms of people pretending, you know, self-expression kind of writ You know what? It's, so it's, do you have any lessons for you know? It's just down to uh, Ray Charles' quote. You know, two kinds of music: good music and bad music. That's how you stand out. You're just good. Jordan, do you have any um, advice? I have to say, and it's interesting to hear you guys talk about the formula issue, I, I think I'm always looking for a show that somebody would say, holy shit, I've never seen that before. That's what gets you walking out of a theater, getting on your cell phone, getting on your Twitter, and telling people to come. 
is I've never seen anything like that before. Mm. Um, That's right. It's hard. It's it's hard to get those first people to come because you have nothing to say. Well, it's kind of like this, but maybe like that. Um, but I think that's where the shows are that change the world. But that's why you're completely unique, because you're prepared to take a risk on something that isn't easily categorizable in the same way. And a lot of producers, you know, I think a lot of times it is theatre that's really now I see some absolutely astounding things in theatre. And I mean, I grew up going to the theatre. I'm completely obsessed with the theatre, so I'm biased towards it anyway. But I'm just as obsessed with music and film and, you know, and I love television. I work a lot in television. So, you know, but, but it's, it's, it's quite rare, I think, in this, in this, in these you know, in this economic climate in particular, for people to say, I'm prepared to take that risk. And, and how do you, when you're taking a, a show that really is totally radical to your financial backers, how do you get them to say, and I mean, and I don't know anything about funding, and I, you know. It's really hard is the answer to that. Um, and I'm independent, and I take my time. And we're a dying breed. You're independent. You take your time, dying breed. It, and you have to wait, and you have to shift a paradigm. You constantly have to mm. shift. So, so it takes a lot of um, energy, not just money. So, Sasha, you talked to, I mean, you're obviously much more engaged on the sort of front end of Internet. How would you say, what lessons are you learning about how to stand out in the crowd online and in the music world? Um, I think I have an incredibly dull answer, which is sort of what everyone else has said. But um, there's really, the good thing about the Internet destroying the music business, which needed to be destroyed with a, an enormous ball of righteous flame um, and thankfully it has and, and the people who run it would agree with me um, a lot of people who didn't deserve to jo have jobs don't have them anymore which is good um, don't it's very simple be really 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 good and don't spend a lot of money and never ever sell the rights to your work to somebody else and that's all you have to do um, now that said um, you were saying that there, there aren't that many jobs. There aren't that many good things out there. Um, it, there's all, you know, people are constantly studying and opining and trending. I've never lived a life from the age of, I bought my first 45 when I was 8 years old. I've never seen a year where there were 10 mind-blowing songs and 10 mind-blowing albums. It's never even happened that 10 is a high number. So I think back to a show... Um, I'm not promoting something that's in the book today, but we do have a review of the new Bonnie Bear record, which I'll be completely honest, I don't like. But uh, this artist, Justin Vernon, he uh, has an act called Bonnie Bear. Um, and this is the perfect way to see a show. I did not want to go out. I was tired. I was, I'd been editing all day. I were writing, whatever the hell I was doing. I was just, I want to go home. And my girlfriend was like, no, 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 I really like this record. And I was like, that badly recorded emo piece of crap. I don't want to hear that. Yeah. I was like, dude doesn't even know how to mic his own stuff. I was like, really not into it. And the lovely people at the Bowery Ballroom gave me a nice little table up in there. And I was like, fine, give me a beer or whatever. I don't care. And this dude comes out, beard, looks like a lumberjack. And I'm like, who is this guy? You played the weird falsetto. Uh, what is this? And he had a sort of set of pedals around him. And he had this very regular guy thing. He's like, hi, I'm Justin. I'm going to play some songs. And then, like, the voice of this angel came out, and I was weeping for an hour. And when I wasn't weeping, nobody made a sound. And I was completely... It was just, like, not even a 180, like a 720. Like, I spun around a few times. <laughs> and I thought, like, okay, 
it's so simple and yet like good luck having that happen more than once every two years and I just walked out of there and he was also a lovely man um, and I'm sure I'll come around to the new record but they, um, that just doesn't happen that often so you know what's the advice the advice is if you're really bad at what you do stop doing it I mean no I mean if you've ever had to fire anybody or you've ever had to like be a band leader and be like um yeah that's the ninth show in a row where you forgot that the third part comes there like I'm glad you can remember 27 jokes but you do need to remember how the songs go and if you're having trouble remembering how the songs go maybe you should do something different um be really really good at it but for now in this internet age because you can tweet it you know and all that stuff Make use of that. Don't spend the money. Don't hire people you don't need. Don't have some guy who meets the guy who meets the guy. Like, go meet the guy yourself. Don't hire a guy to meet the other guy. Like, don't spend that money. Book your own tour. On that note, I would like to open it up to questions. We have about ten minutes or so left. Yeah, well, just from the league standpoint, when I look at the music and the entertainment industry specifically, years ago there was an NFL. There was a couple of places you could go, a couple of labels who could break you big. Now today, a Bravo can break something that in past only an NBC or a CBS could do. And a, you don't need a record label. And all of a sudden a kid explodes and he's got five million views and who is this kid? So I think maybe the problem is that there are so many instant avenues today that these kids don't get ready and they don't get prepped and you're like, you know, a Mad Men, which never would have been made on network television, gets picked up and all of a sudden becomes a hit. So I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm curious how you think, I think that... Um, uh, I wrote a piece about this and ended up talking to a bunch of bands and labels and I actually think it's pretty simple and I've heard this from the bands to smaller labels up to one of the most powerful men in the industry and you actually do still need labels. You don't need a label with 250 employees, 248 of whom do fuck all. You need a label with like three or four people who do their jobs that aren't really that hard, but they need to be good at it. You, you can't have, you can't be bad at your job anymore. That's the sort of the punishing meritocracy, point, you know, internet punchline. And like, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit unhappy for people losing their jobs, but it's not, it's not a bad thing, and because there's probably something else you could be doing, so it's like a tough love kind of thing. But I mean, you, you do need labels, but it might be three people. I'm just going to go to a question at the back, Peter. Peter York, I've got a question and two observations, and the question is for the members of the panel whether they are happy to be called creative or creatives, which is, of course, as you will know the term used for a certain role in advertising. And so my discontent about creativity is that I find it a terrible leg-crossing kind of term for anything. That's why I so love Malcolm Gladwell and his 10,000 hours. And I like the idea of the kind of Victorian painter who was very good at sunsets or at drapery. Because the idea of non-specific creativity, drawing a cloak around an awful lot of people because they're producing an awful lot more quote-unquote creative people, i.e. people trained and intended for the creative industry sectors and the arts in a very non-specific, rather worrying way, that worries me a lot. And when people use that term, it's rather like sitting next to somebody who says, 
I read your auras. They're saying, I am a creative. The second thing is, it implies that people who don't do those things, who don't have those particular trainings, and don't work in those sectors, by definition, aren't creative. So we say, uh, rule out accountancy, where accountants deal with the most amazing and impenetrable abstractions. It's fantastic. Or we rule out engineers, as we were hearing this morning from Kanalita, what amazing creative things they do. Can we defend the idea of the creative industries as opposed to people who are very good at painting sunsets? I'm going to get to the first question about, would you like, are you happy to be calling, calling yourself a creative? I, I despise the fact that uh, there is anything called the creatives or the creative because, of course, that's an abstraction that doesn't exist. There are just people who just want a, a couple beers, a couple of laughs, want to make, uh, provide entertainment for other people. Um, that comes from something inside, as I was saying. I don't know. Um, we shouldn't be demeaned, nor we should be uh, you know, outrageously um, extolled. We do what we do because we can't do anything else. No, it's a <laughs> condition. Jordan, do you have a, do you have a view? Um, I love it because... Um, the alternative, I would be called a businessman. Um, and I very much, back to what I was saying in the beginning of theater being definitionally commercial, I resist, uh, at least in the theater, the distinction between creative and commercial people, thought. Um, the distinction is really one of division of labor, not, shouldn't be one of oh, that's what they do, and that's what they do. Clemency, what's your... I'm sure that, as Gillian Tett would um, agree, the, the banking sector, for example, is infinitely more creative than a lot of the creative industries that I kind of currently am engaged in. Um, I don't think... I mean, I'm a completely individual freelance person, and um, I, I uh, don't think anyone would have ever labelled me a creative in that sense, so um, I don't know, really. But it's, I, I, I certainly find it incredibly enriching to work... Um, in industries where lots of very inventive and imaginative people, I think curiosity is the word really, it's not so much about create, you know, it's not so much about being labelled a creative because that goes back to a lot of what we were talking about in terms of the labelling, but curiosity is all really. Mm -hmm. Sasha, do you have a view? Um, I don't think any of us really know what we're doing um, <laughs> and <laughs> what I mean by that is that during the course of a day you're the janitor, you're the plumber, you're creative for a few minutes, uh, <laughs> then you're the hand holder, then you're the trash taker outer, then you're the lo logistical person, then you're the nine hour emailer. I mean, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think that there's any particular, I mean, I mean, it says creativity up there. I don't know. I don't know if I'm, I'm creative or not. I haven't got the slightest idea. Um, you end up in a job around certain things, but as, as Ken was pointing out earlier, the most fascinating part of the day, I mean, yes, the financial sector managed to create a separate ghost world where they don't have to do anything they don't want to do. Um, you can have a moment where you, and this happens all the time, dealing in the world of the iPad, where you speak to a, a young technician or an engineer and they tell you something utterly mind-blowing about how that stupid photo spread on, you know, eggplant you came up with got from point A to point B in this magical package that blooms like a bullion cube in somebody else's tablet. And, you know, that'll blow away whatever dumb idea, you know, you had it for a song and when you woke up and, like, creative, I don't know. I, it's probably a good thing I didn't record that dumb song when I thought of it in the morning. But it's, I'm really glad that this guy knows how to get 
you know, a, a five-page photo spread from one point in, in, into another in, you know, 12 seconds. I mean, that blows me away. And so creative, I haven't got the slightest idea. Um, we have time for pretty about two more questions. I'll take them at the same time. Yeah, yeah the back on the right-hand side. Hi, this is for Karen. My name is Jane. I just was curious to hear more about your thoughts on character articulation, since you mentioned that as one of the two most important things for you. Okay. Do you want me to answer yeah. that now? Yeah, oh, yeah. uh, just, just to say that um, uh, the mythologies of our lives always come from uh, character, from the beginning of theatrical history. So um, to say something about somebody that it may not be you, may not, but you, might, you feel, well, that's human. And I don't know enough about that kind of thing. That's the wellspring of theater, and it's the wellspring of what we do. Uh, every great play has a great lead. Actually, I'll take two questions. I'm Silting, and as a person, and my question is for Sasha and for Karen, and I'm a person by way of background who created a website when no one was creating websites, and now I write very sometimes idiosyncratic pieces for the FT. But as our technology, you know, it used to be that you could start a website if no one would publish you or no one would listen to you. But now as our technology with the iPad and other things being more about consumption versus creating, if you've ever tried to create on the iPad, it's impossible to do. What resources are there for people who are not being buoyed up by the industry or the system or doesn't have anyone buying into what they want to do? Okay, thank you. And um, I'm Rebecca Walton, and um, my question is about the relationship between subversion and creativity. I'd like to have a comment from any of the creatives, and I risk using that term, about the importance of subversion in creative work and moral responsibility of creative people to subvert. Um, should we take the first question, Karen? I think yeah, I think just that um, I think the problems of uh, getting heard are always the same. If, you know, I have no idea what to do. I, I really wouldn't be able to begin how to advise anything. It's just I was uh, annoying and bossy. That was my technique. Uh, but I, I honestly, I honestly couldn't tell you. I think it's probably as hard as it ever was, but no harder. Sasha, I mean, I think if I think I understand the question. Correct me if uh, I'm wrong. You're talking about the different platforms and and moving on to something. I mean. Uh, the short version of it um, is the web is still quite popular and um, very few people actually percentage-wise have tablets. Um, I think there will be a point in five years where it will be much easier to do something on this platform um, instead of the web, but the web's not going anywhere. I think all of this is going to shake out into a place where, you know, do we have a phone and a tablet and a computer and a TV? Probably we won't. We'll have maybe two or three things. Um, we will be insanely overly connected. Um, and, and I do think still, I'm, I'm very optimistic about having seen it happen to so many people I know who are friends. They start, as you say, from, from nowhere. Literally, they get up on the web, they have a voice, they're intense, and it spreads. And if you're really, really good... And there aren't that many of those people, but if you're really, really good, you will get noticed. People will ask you. I just saw a bunch of my friends get real jobs. Um, and literally all they did was they got up one day on the Internet a few years ago and they started talking. But they were brilliant and they were funny and they paid attention and they worked hard. But th that's actually a, not a different number than 1950 or 1850. Like, there aren't that many people who are that good at it. So having the democratic sort of access of the web is potentially great, but if you're a mediocre mind and you have mediocre ideas, it doesn't matter if you 
blog 19 times a day, nobody's going to care. Mm -hmm. um, but if you are exceptional, you'll get found a little bit faster, and you'll have to, you know, learn a little bit quicker. But I'm a little bit optimistic about that. And anyway, the, you know, the tablet isn't even a very good computer yet. So that's like that. That really coming into fruition is is a few years away. I think. I mean, it doesn't even have dual processing. So that's. I'm just going to get John to answer the question about subversion because then we're out of time. Um, I think the moral, you're talking about the moral obligation of the creative, I think the moral obligation is to be authentic um, and to tell your truth. If that happens to be subversive, God love you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank the panel, Karen, Jordan, uh, Clemency, and